Starting today, the Buddhist Geeks Dojo, our Sangha in the Cloud, is open for training. Dojo literally means the place of the way or the place of awakening. You can think of the Buddhist Geeks Dojo as a training ground for the heart and mind, a place where you can put into practice with others those things that support the flourishing of mindful awareness, of compassion, of wisdom. And this isn't just about us, because we're nodes in the network of consciousness. We are the network. Our awakening is tied to the awakening of all things. So what the dojo really is, is your life. Your life is the place of the way. In the Buddhist Geeks Dojo, we simply train to realize this more deeply, more fully, more intimately. BuddhistGeeks.com slash dojo Buddhist Geeks Exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What's the sound of one geek giving? Find out at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I am thrilled to be joined today by three special guests. Uh, We're doing a four-way Skype call, so if you uh, start hearing all kinds of crazy stuff in the background, that's probably because we're all in different cities. And today I am uh, really delighted to be joined by uh, David Vago, who has been here on the show with us a couple times before, and a couple new guests, uh, Rael Khan and Sonia Cicada. So uh, all three are contemplative scientists. All three are involved in very interesting work, which we're going to get into, and are all um, helping organize an upcoming conference called Advances in Meditation Research, um, Genetics, Neuroscience, and Clinical Applications. This is happening in New York City in September 24th and 25th. And um, I'm going to be there. I'm excited about it. You can find out more at meditation2015.com. So we're going to kind of explore a little bit about um, you know the themes that you all will be exploring there at the event and also the general field of meditation research uh, and kind of hearing your perspective on, on, on what the field is like right now. Um, but before we jump into that, um, I wanted to see, um, since you're all contemplative scientists, since you're all part of this very odd group of folks who've come up uh, studying both uh, the first person contemplative introspective techniques on the one hand, and also the third person scientific uh, techniques of, of exploration, examination. Um, I wanted to see if each of you could take a little bit to share a little summary of your dual background, your hybrid uh, bio, uh, both on the contemplative side and also on the science side. Um, and whoever wants to, to jump in first, you know, feel free. Sony, do you want to start since you uh, really initiated the, the interest in making this meeting uh, come to fruition a few years back? Sure. Hi, Vincent. Hi, Dave and Rael. My name is Sonia Cicada, and uh, my background is in both biochemistry and neuroscience. I have a PhD in both. And um, I currently do clinical research. Uh, and I think that my passion for developing um, this, this meeting with my colleagues is to really 
increase the strength of evidence that there is in, the, in, in science to support the benefits of meditation in its many forms. Um, even though we have over 3,000 uh, trials, clinical trials out there relating to meditation in some, in, in some way, uh, the strength of evidence is, is still uh, a very poor quality. And this has to do not so much with meditation not working, but it has to do with the heterogeneity of methods used and uh, lack of resources, funding, and, and many other things uh, that have not made the field advance as much as it could. Um, my personal background in the contemplative sciences, I started practicing Zazen when I was 16. And um, uh, after a few years of practicing, I began to study yoga in a more Vedantic uh, tradition, which I did for um, quite a few years. And then I started focusing on sound meditation, which, um, which, which definitely I was, I was very compelled by. And uh, to this day, I maintain a practice. I do teach meditation and yoga. Um, and uh, I, couldn't see, I couldn't see my life uh, better split between the two things. Um, clinical research is definitely the, the interface of the science of meditation and the practice. And we want to make sure that there's a that that balance is maintained when we do research. Okay, awesome. And and where are you uh, where are you based physically, Sonia? At Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Okay, and and what city is that in? In New York City. Okay, great, awesome. Um, thank you so much. Really interesting to hear hear a bit about your background. Um, and and Rael, how about we go to you next? Since uh, since David's uh, the sort of veteran of the the Buddhist Geeks podcast. Sure. So my background uh, really started from exposure as a kid. Uh, my parents both being into meditation to varying degrees, you know, dad more in Zen Buddhism and mom more in um, the yogic traditions, having uh, lived and uh, kind of learned meditation at the Self-Realization Fellowship uh, as a young woman herself. And so from a, a pretty young age, I was exposed to the practices um, and then around high school started really uh, actively engaging with the practices as a way of kind of working through some of the, the teenage confusions around identity and, you know, what, what to do with my life. Um, and by the time I was through with college, I had gotten pretty clear around the fact that these kinds of practices really seem to be uh, deeply helpful for myself, and I had the sense that um, would be really helpful for a wider uh, kind of swath of society if they could be made more available and, um, you know, also... I had the intuition that there seemed to be something universal about them that wasn't a, uh, specific to a religious kind of tradition as much as the human condition uh, and, you know, the nature of mind that, that these kind of practices seem to shed light on in a really um, universal and uh, beneficial way. So 
it was with those kinds of uh, thoughts and considerations that I embarked on um, medical and scientific training. I did MD-PhD uh, kind of combined training at UC San Diego starting in the late 90s and uh, continued to engage in my, my own personal practice was mostly informed by uh, Vipassana and the kind of traditional mindfulness types of practice. Um, and that continues to be my practice to this day, although I have explored other forms of practice as well. And to kind of uh, bring to the present day after finishing, you know, my, my PhD in neuroscience, looking at the, um, the EEG kind of correlates to meditative experience and, and also doing some work there looking at um, the EEG correlates to altered states of consciousness brought on through the effects of uh, psychedelic drugs partly interested in the kind of comparing and contrasting of those types of states. I finished up medical training and went through the residency in psychiatry and, and now uh, for the last year have been employed at the University of Southern California as an assistant professor of psychiatry where I'm working on uh, getting a, a more clinically focused program of study with concurrent neuroimaging psychophysiology types of measures for um, really exploring the application of meditative practice to psychological distress and psychiatric illness. Okay, interesting. And both both of you have mentioned uh, uh, the, the term clinical, and I wondered if you could flesh out for the lay practitioners and lay scientists among us, um, what, what, do you, what exactly do you mean by clinical in this case? Well, I could say for me, what I'm uh, mean by it is the um, application of meditative interventions for people who are suffering with what is considered to be a kind of recognized diagnosis within the current medical system. Um, and, you know, it's in some ways it's a, a bit of an artificial boundary there because everyone has psychological distress of some kind or another and it is possible to design uh, a, a clinical study um, that also doesn't include a, a kind of diagno diagnostically uh, recognized category of uh, suffering. <laughs> so, you know, the the methodology by which one studies the effect of meditation um, in a clinical study versus a non-clinical study really can be uh, quite identical. And in that sense, the term, you know, loses some of its specificity. Um, in general, the kinds of studies that I'm interested in um, in doing at this point, because of the, the relative maturation of the field, it seems pretty clear that if you look at people before and after they learn to meditate, there'll be some positive uh, kind of outcomes at the psychological and, and uh, some changes also at the physiological level. Um, so at this point, it's really most beneficial to be looking at how does how do meditative interventions compare to some kind of a control intervention uh, so that we can get down 
into specifying what are the results of meditative practice that are really specific to doing the meditation as opposed to the other kinds of non-specific factors involved in such uh, such interventions. You know, in, in the clinical uh, literature, we talk about an intervention and we mean something that a group of people does um, that we're studying whether that intervention, you know, has beneficial effects on psychological or physiological functioning. And so looking at the non-specific effects of meditation and the meditation interventions include all these factors like being in a group, having a sense of identity that's being supplemented by a group process over, over time. And a lot of the initial studies in the field were done without such controlled uh, kind of conditions where it's not clear looking back whether it's really the meditation that was actively kind of contributing to the positive changes that were observed versus some of the non-specific factors. Okay, that's really interesting. And uh, Sonia, is there anything there that you'd, you'd add? Well, uh, what I would add is that um, when there's a basic research question that is you know, published in a few people, that there's a long way before you're able to provide sufficient evidence through randomized controlled trials that it's applicable for a larger population and demographic. And, and that's really the goal of our field, to be able to find generic practices that are applicable to various populations and effective in a time frame that's useful to them. We need to pinpoint for a particular type of meditation how long should that training be to elicit an effect that we're looking for, whether it's to alleviate a symptom or to create a new, uh, a new perspective in life or, or eliminate disease, what do we need to do? And that takes time and it takes a very structured uh, implementation of what we call clinical research. Okay, got it. And David, um, f- fill us in. I-, I think you've maybe mentioned bits and pieces of this in, in past conversations, but I'd love to, to hear the full, the full story. Um, all right. Thanks, Vince, for having us on. Um, and um, yeah, I think this is a great way to sort of learn a little bit about uh, about the the meeting itself, and uh, you know who the organizers are, and where we're coming from, uh, both as contemplative practitioners and scientists. I think, as all of us really know now, that to be a real good scientist in this field, um, there has to be this first person perspective. Uh, not only um, f- from the perspective of the scientist who's who's conducting the research, uh, but uh, in in the subjects themselves. So when we when we study these these meditators, we really have to have that first person uh, experience uh, to match the or to at least uh, coincide with some of the more objective measures that we're looking at. And and we can come back to that because that's a discussion in itself of, of how that's important and if that leads to bias or not. Um, so just from my own background to fill you in, um, yes, yeah, so I was trained as a basic cognitive neuroscientist uh, at the University of Utah focusing on learning and memory. I was uh, a Goenka-style Vipassana uh, meditator um, since 1996, so the last 19 years of as a practitioner, has started with Goenka-style Vipassana as a young college student 
and moved on into more Dzogchen and Mahamudra practice, which is uh, more of my current uh, style of practice, and some of basic mindfulness uh, practice, which is also uh, something by Shenzhen Yang. Um, so that that's my that's my contemplative practitioner side, uh, and my cognitive neuroscience background uh, now fuels a, a, a more translational program of research where I, I do try to examine the basic neural mechanisms uh, by which meditation practices function and try to understand how those um, basic mechanisms can be applied in the clinical domain. And from my perspective, the, I am looking at the basic sciences as pointing out very specific uh, biomarkers for diagnostic purposes, for trying to understand where the advanced practitioner uh, may be in terms of their pro progress as a practitioner, um, to understand uh, sustainably healthy states of mind, to show uh, for biofeedback or neurofeedback um, purposes um, for uh, uh, populations that have dysfunctional emotion regulation, for example. We have uh, the advanced meditators give us a nice trajectory of what is a healthy mind and what a healthy mind may look like so that we can use that later for uh, feedback. Um, so we have diag uh, diagnostic purposes for progress by the practitioner and, uh, of course, for using these uh, basic mechanisms to identify points for uh, therapeutic purposes. So I see this sort of translational work as being critical. Um, uh, you know, at the forefront of both the neurosciences and, and, and clinical sciences. Uh, and so since, um, let's see, so my, my continued background really is I was a senior scientist for the Mind to Life Institute between 2007 and 2010 um, as a lot of traction started to be made in the research domain and they needed to have neuroscientists uh, uh, on board to help coordinate a lot of the research efforts. And then uh, I joined uh, Harvard Medical School and Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts uh, as a faculty member uh, in the Department of Psychiatry uh, in 2010. So that's my background. Okay. It's, it's interesting to hear how each of you um, got involved in on the contemplative side around your college years. Um, I mean, it makes sense, you know, given the amount of time and discipline it takes to do both uh, the, the contemplative journey, you know, and also to, uh, to do the kind of studies that you all have with science. But I, th I found that fascinating. So thank you for sharing. You know, one of the things I was really excited about both with this conference that you're putting on and also, you know, with this conversation is, is to kind of consider um, where the field of meditation research is going, you know, as someone who is not a trained scientist, but is very interested in what's happening it seems like there's so much happening. I mean, Sonia, you mentioned 3,000 trials currently in process. Um, you know, it, so in a certain way, it seems like there's almost like an exponential growth of research happening. And yet it's hard to really wrap one's mind around, and maybe this is even true while you're doing research, like where the field is going and what's exciting um, and what's emerging really, you know, with, with where you all are sitting, um, pun fully intended here. Um, so I wanted to ask, you know, whoever wants to share, it could be all of you. Uh, you don't have to share if you don't want. Um, but where are you seeing the most exciting advances 
right now in the last couple of years in particular um, in the meditation research field, whether it's your research or others, what, what's, what's kind of uh, really exciting to you right now? And how, how would you describe that to those people who, who aren't trained scientists? Well, I can take a brief stab at that. There, the the two main things that I find exciting. Uh, one is really in regards to the um, acceptance and engagement in meditation-based practices within both clinical and neuroscience uh, frameworks. Um, having been uh, really engaged in tracking the field from. Uh, the late 90s to the present, uh, it's been remarkable to see the explosion of interest and high-quality work uh, that is reflected just in the, the fact that there's so many publications that have come out. Um, and year by year, the number of publications and the, pub- and the, and the quality of um, work continues to improve the you know number of researchers around the world who are actively engaged continues to grow and uh, I would say that when I started uh, really researching in this field I was not so sure that this was a field that would ever uh, gain this level of um, prominence and actual progress and uh so you know that's one thing that's just really exciting to me and i I think that as more and more people get involved in actually running studies and paying attention to what's being done by others the both the quality of the work increases greatly but also you know a lot of the important uh things to pay attention to to make sure that what we are uh, talking about is is real and not, uh, you know, related to some of the many different confounds that can, uh, you know, contribute to false understandings within science. Um, so that's one thing. And then uh, in terms of, like, specific findings, um, my own... I think the excitement has been greatest around some of the neuroimaging stuff that's um, been certainly my my own area of primary study and uh, and in particular the um, the brain circuitries involved in meditative training have been uh, kind of spottily uh, 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 consistent across trials, you know, there, there's, uh, especially through the early 2000s, um, you know, we just didn't have a clear sense of what were the most important brain circuit changes that underlie the, uh, progress through meditative, uh, practice. And there's still some, uh, I, I would, I would argue there's still some very significant room for uh, improvement in terms of our in-depth understanding there. But there have come to be a a few key brain circuitry kind of findings that 
I think are consistent enough so that we can say that you know something really is going on with this circuit, <laughs> and uh, and one of those uh, that's most promising to me is the uh, widely uh, kind of recognized now uh, effects on the default mode network or what's sometimes called the intrinsic network of the brain or task negative network. Um, but it's a, a series of brain areas that seems to underlie the experience of uh, the self-narrative that we uh, almost subconsciously and, and sometimes more consciously are often engaged with throughout our life as homo sapiens and has to do with kind of being in the realm of abstraction with our thinking uh, and less immediately attentive to the surroundings. And there's something, you know, consistent that's come across in the past five years or so where some change in that circuitry seems to be really important in the process of, uh, of learning to meditate and gaining some expertise with meditation. Um, and I think it really points to this essential kind of target with meditative practice of changing the experience of the self. And it's exciting to me that we're getting somewhere uh, with regards to that, that, uh, you know, it's still not 100% clear whether, you know, it's a decrease in the default mode network overall or, or an alteration of some of the other hubs of the brain communicating to the default mode network um, that is most kind of importantly related to meditative uh, advancement, but something going on there certainly seems to be. But you know, it, it isn't. It, it's it's not yet clear whether what alteration in the default mode network's activity and um, the. Um, the co-synchronization of some of the key default mode network structures with some other brain areas, um, it, it's not yet clear whether it's uh, more the, the principal thing related to advancement with meditative practice and expertise has to do with tamping down uh, the default mode network uh, synchronization within itself, or maybe it's more involved with the of bringing online the um, co-synchronization of the default mode network structures with some other brain areas. There, there are suggestive findings both ways, um, but I do think th the thing that excites me about it is that it seems to be a pretty consistently changed aspect of brain activity through meditation practice, and uh, because of its interesting correlation with self-related processing and the self-narrative process, um, I think is likely to really be of key importance to our uh, final and um, you know more mature understanding of how brain activity is related to the changes that that we see through meditation. Okay, awesome. Thank you. So, two things from from Ryle. Uh, just to summarize, so so the first being the kind of growth, um, both in terms of publications, but also in terms of widespread kind of interest in in meditation and meditation research, and then the uh, the second being the sort of consistent findings around the default mode network, and you used a couple other names 
the intrinsic network and the task negative network, which I'd never heard before. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for, uh, for sharing that. Um, uh, Sonia or David, what, what are the things that you're excited about? Um, that, that that's sort of emerging could, could even be the same things. I, I imagine these are exciting for, for a lot of people. What, what Ryal just mentioned. I wanted to pick up actually right where Ryle left off. If you don't mind, please Sonia, do, Sonia. please do, please do. Uh, I think, you know, what one thing Ryle is pointing to is that uh, the, the hype that's out there right now with mindfulness, um, at least alluding to that hype. And if you look at a recent search, for example, of uh, th- uh, nearly 30,000 media publications uh, related to mindfulness uh, are out there in just 2014. And um, uh, we, we started to, there's a group of us who will actually be at this conference who are writing a position paper um, about um, basically the hype of mindfulness and uh, best practices in, in which to interpret the data that's out there and uh, how to conduct good contemplative science research. And that is in the process uh, of finalizing um, preparation for submission to perspectives on psychological science. Um, and uh, it's been, it was a really a group effort that was done by a large uh, group of contemplative scientists. And um, so it really sort of speaks to the problem that we are in right now, where there's so many media articles that convey exaggerated claims about the benefits of mindfulness and portray it as this panacea. And this has led to some backlash in which the popular press begins to question whether some of the findings are just positively biased. Everything that comes out from meditation research shows that, oh, it's good for this, it's good for that, it's good for everything you can imagine. Um, and, and there's certainly a lot of misperceptions about, uh, about what mindfulness is to begin with um, and for various reasons. But, but we have to admit that you know, mindfulness uh, in every shape and form has permeated so many aspects of our society now. I mean, from every domain you can possibly imagine, you see it, and it's widely accepted. From education uh, to sports uh, to the clinical uh, uh, medical centers that were, that, you know, the top uh, medical centers in the world, all over the world, have now embraced mindfulness. Uh, it, it involves the most advanced uh, and most evolved forms of psychotherapy and behavioral therapy include some aspect of mindfulness now. Uh, these third wave forms of behavioral therapy, which are um, the um, sort of the next phase or the next generation of cognitive behavioral therapy um, and talk therapy, all include mindfulness. And these are all uh, sponsored by federal government and by all the top uh, institutions in the world. So we have to understand both from the basic science level where the advances are, uh, what the advances are, where they're coming from, and start to really pick apart some of the nuances. Um, uh, Rael spoke a little bit about the default mode network, and what we're realizing is that there's not really, in, in neuroscience, what we're realizing is that there's not really any, any one particular brain region that's going to uh, give us mindfulness um, or give us the opposite of mindfulness, like mindlessness. Um, we're realizing that this is a game of networks and the neuroscience is advancing by understanding how networks work and interact with each other. 
and, and to be honest, the I think the mind wandering uh, uh, um, research is starting to be quite interesting because the history of mind wandering is that it was used as a baseline rest state for all neuroimaging work. So in neuroimaging, basically, when you're interested in a, in, in a particular state, say just emotion, um, you want to compare that particular state of interest to a state of no interest. And the, when, when Riles speaks of task negative, he's referring to this state of no interest, really, a state that which we, we, we want to examine as a baseline, which is a state of mind-wandering rest. Uh, and But what we realized through doing contemplative science research, and this is why contemplative science is pushing the field of neuroscience forward beyond any other field of neuroscience or, or, or sub-discipline of neuroscience, is that we're realizing that when the mind wanders, it's doing lots of things. And that self-narrative is one of the critical things uh, that uh, we've been investigating and realized that, uh, that the mind's tendency to wander, to task unrelated, internally generated thoughts are, is most often biased towards this negative self-referential processing or rumination, for example. And this could have implications at the clinical level. And so if, if truly mindfulness is sort of a opposing mental state to mind wandering, then this is really going to be one of those uh, uh, aspects of contemplative science that is going to push the field of neuroscience uh, forward. And I think what we're realizing, in, even in the contemplative sciences, as we get to a more nuanced level of investigation, is that mindfulness and mind-wandering may be described as opposing mental states, but there's a lot of similarities to those states, uh, and we, we can go into that. But th those are the things I think that we're going to uh, start to see uh, in, 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 the, in the field, and, and uh, this, this conference will specifically be, be investigating or commenting upon some of the differences between mind-wandering and advanced states of meditation. And that's at the basic level. And then, of course, at the clinical level, like I said, there's you know, so many of the, uh, uh, the highest and most evolved forms of psychotherapy now um, are incorporating mindfulness. But we don't really understand what, is, what are the active ingredients for a mindfulness-based intervention. Uh, for 25 years, mindfulness-based stress reduction has been the... Uh, the model uh, intervention. And um, uh, there was a recent uh, meta-analysis that was done uh, by Goyal et al. And this was um, uh, published in uh, JAMA Inter Internal Medicine in 2014. And they went through over uh, 18,000 citations um, that included some sort of mindfulness-based intervention. And out of those 18,000, they only found 47 that they thought were good enough to be uh, rigorous, randomized, controlled trials uh, and investigated just those 47 to see if there was any uh, conclusions that they could make about just an eight-week course compared to an active control, meaning something that matches the 
uh, matches the amount of time uh, spent in a group setting uh, to control for those non-specific effects that that Ryle was referring to, like just being in a group, for example, can be therapeutic. Uh, having a really charismatic uh, instructor could have a really large effect. So we need to rule some of those things out and see if actually meditating with the core practices such as focused attention, open monitoring or mindfulness uh, and uh, loving kindness types of practice actually have the, the majority of the uh, uh, clinical benefit on, on uh, various um, symptoms like anxiety and depression. And we don't know that answer yet. We know that there's certainly some benefit to reducing symptoms of depression and anxiety. But a lot of the findings that came out of that, that uh, meta-analysis showed that things like well-being um, weren't, uh, or these controlled matched interventions weren't any, uh, uh, or the mindfulness interventions weren't any better than those matched controls, active controls. And so w- if mindfulness is doing something, well, we need to figure out more creative ways at, at identifying what those active ingredients are. And I think that's where the clinical domain is starting to excel as well. Okay, interesting. So, so going back to, to, to the first thing you said, kind of um, you sort of mentioning the amount of hype that surrounds mindfulness right now. And it's certainly you know, for anyone who's been following this field, you know, you've kind of seen, um, I, I looked up one time something called the hype cycle. And the hype cycle was was a, a sort of a graphical representation that was developed by an IT research and advisory firm um, named Gartner, and and they sort of developed it to kind of show what happens during the adoption and maturation of specific technologies in terms of how how, how society responds to it. And and as soon as I saw this, I couldn't help but you know think of mindfulness, you know, and and the way that it seems to be going through something similar, you know, where at the beginning you have the the, the trigger. Uh, the technological trigger, you know, something that kind of brings about an awareness of the stuff. Where there's very early R and D, and I think that's you know largely what's happening in the science world. And then at some point, you reach the peak of uh, inflated expectations and of um, people becoming aware that it exists. And as soon as you hit the peak, the negative press starts. And it seems like we sort of just reached that point recently, where there's just a cascade now of negative press coming out. And and you know, in, the, in this model, the hype cycle, where where you go is into the trough of disillusionment, <laughs> which which also sounds like a description of the contemplative path to me, but. Um, you know, interesting, but but then you know they, they describe the slope of enlightenment sometime after that, and and finally a plateau of productivity. So I wonder, in some ways, if if you know mindfulness and what part of what you're describing, and the necessary, uh, you know, the need for nuance, the need to begin to kind of pull apart the hype from the from the reality, and to start to, to explore some of the things that you're describing, you know, with more depth. You know, it's so interesting that well being. You know, according to this meta-analysis of 47 studies, didn't show you know there was no positive you know uh, uh, impact compared to the control. You know that's really interesting. You know, of course, um, you know that's not a lot of what the hype was about. Like you said, everything was you know medit- mindfulness is 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 good for everything. Um, so anyway, thanks for sharing that. And it, it sounds like there's a lot of work to be done in terms of 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 going through that trough of disillusionment and, and really continuing to study and explore what's, uh, what's real. 
Yeah, you know, I should just w- add one one other thing, and I think one of the things that's great about these types of meetings is that it really puts together a diverse group of basic scientists and uh, clinical scientists together in the same room and starts to talk about these nuanced uh, sort of uh, nuanced level of analysis um, of the field. And so that that's where one of the reasons why we benefit uh, by having these types of meetings. And the other one is that we're not only exploring the MBSR model anymore, we're exploring various levels of delivery from looking at mindfulness being delivered on an app um, for over eight weeks or changing the whole um, timing of delivery to, say, four 20-minute sessions. Does that have any form, uh, any uh, you know, significant changes uh, on symptomatic, uh, you know, sort of uh, experience of depression and anxiety or or neuroplastic changes? And can you know a weekend retreat have uh, a significant effect on people's um, you know d- domains across you know clinical and basic sort of physiological domains? So I think that that's also being changed. And the last thing I would say is that uh, one really amazing thing about this specific conference is that we start to also explore other forms of meditation, not just right. mindfulness-based. So uh, transcendental meditation is is now being, uh, at least we're putting TM practice and mindfulness practice, the practitioners and the scientists in the same room, which for the last 10 years hasn't really been done. And so that I really, um, I, I have to, uh, applaud Sonia for helping make that happen because often there is um, a little bit of friction between TM uh, scientists and, and mindfulness scientists. I could imagine that. Yeah. So, so sorry to take up so much time, but Sonia could probably expand a little bit more about why she thinks this is a um, really important field. Thank you, Dave and, and Rael. I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more with with both Rael and and David. Um, the field has definitely seen a lot of advances in in recent years. I would say, if I were to pick one thing that I'm really excited about uh, in the field, it it would be that the changes that we're seeing from meditation practices are influencing not only individually uh, across a lifespan, but also across evolutionary time. And why do I say this? Because many of the biomarkers that we're seeing uh, that are changed or um, improved uh, with meditation practices are at the very core of our being. We're talking about things such as the ability to repair DNA and the ability to regulate inflammation, which is a central, um, a central physiological process uh, in human survival. And I find it absolutely fascinating that changing your position of self-referencing, essentially giving to others, to being for others, to expanding your um, realm of action to a higher consciousness or a higher state of being can actually make those changes. And the implications to that are very vast. And as Ryle and, and, and David have mentioned, there's still a lot of work to be done to create the strength of evidence that we need um, 
mainly, you know, as, as David said, best practices are surely needed out there, standard operating procedures and clinical trials that are better controlled. But what we're, what we're essentially seeing is that there's a potential to change across generations. The work that we do today, the meditation that we do today can influence our children that, and their children. So we can actually modulate human nature and, um, and our lineages. And I think that's, that's very important. And, you know, not to repeat anything that my colleagues said, the, the most exciting aspect of this series of conferences is undoubtedly the coming together of different traditions. And, you know, it's almost as if we're picking up the pieces of uh, a, a very ancient spiritual and um, uh, spiritual practice, spiritual wisdom that is found throughout cultures. And we're trying to, as practitioners, I actually strongly believed that being practitioners is a plus because I don't believe in bias when you use objective science. Um, I do believe that meditation done right, when put together in its very various elements, um, has to have a, a benefit to humankind. Um, so having these conferences where we compare, we discuss, we listen, and we piece this all together. If you look at ancient traditions, what they say is that you need a strong body to sustain a strong mind, that you need to breathe for the mind, that you need to do physical movement for the body, and you cannot have one without the other. So combining all the, tra all the traditions that currently exist, again, throughout the world, to piece this together and create um, a body of knowledge that can support various populations and demographics will, I think, be essential to decrease the fear that there is around the practice that keeps it from becoming a science and becoming a general practice in our society, because it's still very much associated to um, concepts of religion. And, you know, there's some fear that, but science can help by creating this evidence. And I think that is um, all of our goals. Okay. Interesting. It's funny as you describe, you know, this, 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 this meeting and, and the sort of coming together of different researchers from different, um, meditative backgrounds, it kind of reminds me a little bit of, of like the interfaith dialogue movement, you know, in the seventies and eighties, all of these different religious leaders coming together and talking and sharing ideas and challenging each other and trying, you know, trying to understand each other, uh, each other's perspectives. It almost sounds like sort of a similar thing happening, but now with, you know, with science in the mix, it's like, we're, we're kind of like repeating a cycle or something. Um, but it, but it makes a whole lot of sense to me what you're saying. And I uh, appreciate the, the the work that you all are doing to uh, um, to to push that conversation forward. Yeah, thanks, Vince. I think it's really, really. Uh, I mean, that's. I think the title "Advances in Meditation Research" is key, because that's um, really not only a, a reflection of where where we've come from, but where we're going to. Okay, great. Well, maybe maybe we can do a little conversation, uh, a follow up to this, and 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 explore that question of where where are we going? Um, because I think that's you know of real interest to everyone here, and um, certainly will inform the future uh, you know applied science, the technologies 
that we create out of what, what's being uncovered um, by you and other researchers' work. So uh, we should we should definitely make this a part one of a of a multi part uh, series. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.